Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Sorry to say we don't have a good martini today, but we do have two bads and a crazy. Jim, I like to think we're stockpiling our goods for next Wednesday's edition, but uh, that's merely optimistic, uh, wishful thinking at this point, although uh, plenty of signs suggest uh, a good Tuesday night for Republicans uh, next week and the results that we'll actually know Tuesday night, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, let's get into our bad martinis. Uh, we've referred to in passing over the past couple of weeks the shortage in diesel, and that's a problem because you need diesel to move stuff around the country. And when you don't have enough diesel, well, you can't move stuff. And the stuff that you can move gets a whole lot more expensive. Uh, it was just a couple of days ago that Mansfield Energy announced there was a developing diesel fuel shortage in the southeastern region of the United States. Quote, poor pipeline shipping economics and historically low diesel inventories are combining to cause shortages in various markets throughout the southeast. These have been occurring sporadically with areas like Tennessee seeing particularly acute challenges. But it's not just Tennessee. It's also Maryland, Virginia, where we are, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. The Biden administration, of course, doing everything it can, Jim, keeping a close watch on diesel inventories and working to boost supplies. Of course, there was the 25 days of diesel reserves that was announced on October 14th. So that was 17 days ago. And so what does that mean? Well, in another statement just released today from Mansfield Energy, uh, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. In some places, uh, you're not going to have diesel available, but they're going to try to get it to you as soon as they can. And as a result of this problem, quote, the fuel will be delivered, but at higher costs, which means everything they deliver will be higher costs. So I'm sure for the Biden administration, Jim, the big concern here is that costs are going to go up over the last week of this campaign season. But right now, with this dangerously low level of supply in reserve, uh, this is not a problem that's going to go away overnight. And this administration talking point of we're doing everything we can sounds more hollow every day. Greg, there's a good reason people talk about gas prices. Usually they mean unleaded gasoline. That's what most people's cars run on. That's, you know, oh, okay, you know, they see the biggest signs for. But when you're looking at the gas price that really affects the economy, diesel, if it's not number one, it should be number 1A. It really should not be that far behind for a bunch of reasons. But one of the ones that I remember from writing about this last summer is that basically, you know, if it's not 100%, then 99.9999 of construction equipment runs on diesel. Now, in addition to the usual need for you know construction equipment, you may recall that we pa- Congress passed and Biden signed a big infrastructure bill. The whole idea was, ah, now we're going to do all kinds of road repairs and we're going to build new highway interchanges and new train bridges and tunnels and all kinds of repairs and all kinds of construction projects would get underway. Now, this is pricey as is, but when you decide to have basically all 50 states and all kinds of localities within those states all trying to make massive new infrastructure projects at the same time, that's maximizing the level of demand. And of course, supply is not dramatically increasing. It's about the same. Oh, by the way, as I said, all of these things need diesel at the same time. And we still had a supply chain crisis. And we've still had an issue of whether we have enough truckers. And we've had the issue of how many chassis do we have. So when the diesel price gets high, one, that's going to have you know an inflationary effect because it costs more to ship stuff from point A to point B. So the cost of all these tractor trailers is getting more expensive. 
And then, as I mentioned, all the construction equipment, basically all kinds of things will get more expensive when the cost of diesel goes up. For perspective, I'm looking at uh, AAA right now. It's 530 uh, uh, for a gallon right now. A month ago, it was 487. So that's a pretty big jump. And if for obviously, you know, a year ago, it was 363 per gallon. So, you know, Biden, no doubt, is going to say, oh, look at look at gas prices. Look at how great they are. By the way, right now, according to AAA, the current national average is 376. Uh, a month ago, it was 379. So is it down? Yeah, it's down three cents in a month. 376 is still really high. And it's not surprising that Americans are really frustrated by this. But if, the, if there really is, you know, even higher diesel prices waiting for us on the other end of, of the midterm elections, then the inflationary pressures are only going to get going to get worse, not better. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Jim, it dawns on me that I mean, we talked on Friday about Biden lying about gas being north of five dollars when he took office. He also lied in the other half of that clip because he said uh, the most common price you see now is three dollars and thirty nine cents. Well, if the average is three seventy six. You know, maybe in some parts of the country it's three thirty nine. I don't know, but uh, he's at least uh, being okay. deeply deceptive. So there was a really good article in the Wall Street Journal's weekend edition that pointed out there's a reason Biden is saying the most common price. You know, we all go back to math class. We remember mean, median, and mode, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mean is what we can think of as the average. Uh, median is the one that is exactly in the midpoint between the two extremes. And mode is the most frequently appearing number if you have a sequence of numbers. And unsurprisingly, part part of this, the, the point they're making is that California is significantly higher, really like $2 a gallon higher than most other states or what the national average is. So what Biden wants to do is eliminate, you know, cut off that highest you know, end of it. And yes, the mode or the most frequently mentioned price is, you know, generally significantly better, probably about 30 or 40 points better than the average. Um, but obviously, you know, it's not like California doesn't exist. And it doesn't it's not like Californians aren't Americans. Right, conservatives? <laughs> we love them anyway, even if their state is kind of run kind of wacky and we wish they would learn to vote a little bit differently. Um, but basically, this is a very carefully worded uh, way of arranging the gas price data in order to make it look lower than it really is. Why am I surprised, Jim? I shouldn't be. In fact, mm. I'm probably <laughs> the less of the more I think about this, uh, the less I'm surprised because they do this to us all the time. All right. On to our second bad martini now, Jim, and on to the story that we talked about at the very beginning of Friday's three martini lunch. But we didn't know a lot of the details, so there wasn't a lot to uh, expand upon other than attacking people is bad and sending people to the hospital with serious injuries is bad. Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, attacked on Friday and uh, taken to the hospital with uh, significant injuries. Um, What we've learned since then, of course, is that he was hit with a hammer. And this person that they've arrested in connection to this is a real doozy. He's been a nudist activist. He's, uh, according to everyone who knows him, uh, just been totally baked on drugs for quite a while now. Uh, He's got the pride flag outside his house. He's got the BLM flag. Yet somehow... This guy's a product of the right-wing extremism in this country. That's what uh, people were saying the second this happened, from uh, Lawrence Tribe, as we mentioned on Friday, to other figures as well. Uh, I think Adam Kinzinger was one of the first ones to do that, saying, I'm going to wait for the press conference, but this is the problem. So then uh, Joe Biden, I think he voted over the weekend, and he comes out and says this about uh, Republicans condemning the violence against Paul Pelosi, which, as far as I know, just about all of them did. Talk to them. He seems to be doing a lot better. Looks like he's going to recover fully. 
And uh, but also, don't know for certain, but it looks like uh, this was intended for Nancy. We kept asking, "Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy?" And the generic point I want to make is that, you know, it's one thing to condemn the violence, but you can't condemn the violence unless you condemn those people who continue to argue the election was not real, that it's being stolen, that all the all the malarkey that's being put out there to undermine democracy. You can't just apologize and say the violence. It affects people's mentality. It affects how people think, particularly people who are not maybe as stable as other people. So the the talk has to stop. That's the problem. That's the problem. You can't just say, I feel badly about the violence. We condemn it. Condemn what produces the violence. And this talk produces the violence. That is quite a stretch, Jim, for what we know about this guy. There had been some talk, and I think some people have even found his incoherent website where he perhaps subscribes to some QAnon things, but that's completely different than election uh, denialism. But, I mean, from everybody who seems to know this guy, they think he's just uh, totally fried on, on drugs, and this is more of a psychotic break slash crime story than anything else. So for the left to try and uh, sweep in here and tar every Republican with this and insist that they take down all their campaign hats for, for a while, I mean, this is just a real stretch. Well, as we hear, go back into the... Uh history of this guy, his days as a nudist activist and protesting the Iraq war and things like that. If you are a left wing conspiratorial nut job who with serious drug abuse problems, serious mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera, then it wouldn't surprise me that at some point, particularly after the pandemic, you might drift over into right of center or right wing crazy conspiracy theories and, and all of that. If you look at the political spectrum as a line, there's a school of thought that it's a horseshoe, that sooner or later the two fringes kind of become blurry and indistinguishable from each other because they both believe in sinister, dark forces that are manipulating our lives and that are controlling things behind the scenes and nothing is as it seems. They're the only ones who can see the truth. Everyone else is sheeple, yada, yada, yada. Unless anyone's doubting this, you know, don't beat up Paul Pelosi. Don't beat up anyone. Don't go out and do any of this kind of stuff. Nothing going on in our politics justifies violent assaults on people. Having said that, the president of the United States and quite a few people were really eager to turn this guy into what I would suspect, I'm going to characterize as the second coming of Caesar Sayoc. Now, if you don't recognize that name, good. People like Caesar Sayoc should not be remembered. They should be, you know, let to go off into obscurity. He was the guy who was sending the pipe bombs to various Democrats and media figures in the run up to the 2018 midterms. Um, I don't think you can say that he was the you know, decisive factor in the uh, 2018 midterms, but he did eat up a bunch of news cycles that Republicans would have preferred to be spent on arguments against why the Democrats should be elected with this guy who had this van full of Trump stickers and Trump paraphernalia showing how much he loved Donald Trump, who was very eager to send what appeared to be non-functioning pipe bombs towards all of these figures on the left. Um, Democrats remember this and undoubtedly want to persuade you that, ah, well, something terrible happened to the husband of Nancy Pelosi. He appear, you know, he may or may not have been influenced by uh, criticism of her. Having said that, like people have been hearing criticism of Nancy Pelosi for decades now. And the vast majority of people, you know, like not just the vast majority, 99.99 and put in as many nines as you want, are not motivated to try to break into her house. Oh, by the way, there are some things about this story that seem a little bit odd. It's say, maybe it was just wrong police reporting early on. This thing that's this claim that someone else had opened the door, 
Um, the idea that it, maybe Paul Pelosi opened the door, but then he got close to the guy and they both had their hands on the hammer. There are little details in the police report that don't really add up. I don't think that really changes the overall narrative that somebody who was clearly emotionally and mentally disturbed, who apparently had it out for Nancy Pelosi, got into the house and managed to uh, you know, pretty severely injure Paul Pelosi, a skull fracture. He had to go to the hospital, had to have surgery, etc. This is a terrible thing. Everyone should denounce it. The idea that, you know, running an attack ad saying, don't vote for my opponent because she'll vote to make Nancy Pelosi speaker is somehow it. Look, we've been here before. This is the same thing as the Tucson shooting. That guy was uh, the shooter in that case was uh, an absolute nut job who believed that uh, punctuation was part of a conspiracy. And yet institutions going all the way back to The New York Times were convinced it was because uh, Sarah Palin had uh, bullseye targets on her Facebook page. And that, you know, there's no evidence that the shooter ever saw it. There's no shooter evidence the shooter even you know knew what the heck he was doing but they decided there's political narrative republicans are evil republicans are dangerous thus you should not vote for them i don't think that works in an environment like this i think people are too worried about inflation too worried about economic troubles the border uh what's been done to our schools and the after effects of covid19 uh the closures of the economy after uh, during covid19 all of these things added up to an environment that is very tough for democrats making Trying to generate a national conversation about the assault on Paul Pelosi, I don't think is going to change the dynamics of this midterm election very much. But I think it is very revealing that they're trying to do this and how eager they are to make the argument that the average Republican candidate is the same or indistinguishable from this nut job who decided to assault the husband of the Speaker of the House. Yeah, even this guy's neighbors in the Castro District of San Francisco think this guy's way beyond the pale. So uh, this guy's just got a whole series of problems. Uh, Jim, a couple of things here. Obviously, there's been a lot of Twitter chatter about uh, what the police did report, didn't report, inconsistencies, like you said. I'm sure that, you know, anytime there's a lot of clarifications, you're going to get people wondering what else uh, is not being said. Uh, but we do know that there's been a vicious assault here. That part is clear. And uh, hopefully Paul Pelosi's on the men. The other thing I want to say about what Joe Biden said there, and I think is dangerous, where he talked about uh, certain speech has to stop. Now, if you're mm-hmm. advocating violence, absolutely. That needs to be uh, confronted and condemned and uh, potentially uh, prosecuted, depending on what exactly the speech is. But regardless of whether you agree with, um, you know, whether there was a problem with the last election or any election, uh, we've talked clearly how Hillary and Stacey Abrams and a lot of other people and people who didn't believe Trump got elected and all that sort of thing. The idea that you can't say that in this country and that if then someone gets uh, violent, that somehow you are responsible, that's pretty darn dangerous as well. It is. And I think what we've learned over the past, you know, years, decades, is that there's a big chunk of the left, and I guess for that matter, on the right, who really believe that, well, I, that bothers me, so you shouldn't be allowed to say that. Folks on the left, they may have at one point subscribed to this idea that, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend your right to say it. That just isn't that part of their thinking. And the sheer number of people who will assert, the ignorant likes of which, like, you know, Chris Cuomo, uh, that hate speech is not covered by the First Amendment, when in fact the Supreme Court's ruling has been exactly the opposite. That hate speech is such a nebulous term. And so, you know, Um, that really even the definition for threatening speech has to be really clear and specific in order to be ruled uh, not protected speech. So the U.S. has had a fairly broad definition of constitutionally protected, First Amendment protected speech for a really long time. Based on the people who are coming up in our legal community right now, it's fair to question whether that's going to remain the case in the near future. And the reaction to Elon Musk is another good example of people who believe that if something offends them, it should be shut down. 
because it is inherently threatening because it threatens their preconceptions. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And kudos to the Republicans. The vast, vast majority <coughs> of them obviously condemning the violence, the right thing to do. But they're also not going to take the bait and take down campaign ads with a week left in the campaign season. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. All right. On to the crazy martini now, Jim. And you talk a lot in today's Morning Jolt about the situation in Georgia politically and whether Stacey Abrams uh, seemingly falling further and further behind Brian Kemp in the governor's race might actually end up being a huge favor to Herschel Walker in the Senate race. Uh, Eric Erickson, the talk show host uh, who's based down there in Georgia, seems to think that Stacey Abrams has uh, grifted her way out of a lot of uh, campaign money, so she doesn't have a lot left for campaign ads. I don't know if that's the case, but the polls clearly show Kemp with a sizable lead, and there are recent polls uh, suggesting Herschel Walker has a slight lead. So Sunday night, there was another debate in the Georgia governor's race, and Stacey Abrams has once again uh, lit her election hopes on fire. I think, you know, if she's banking on the suburbs to, to bail her out, I don't think uh, with today's crime rates, this is going to play real well for her. Brian Kemp simply pointing out, hey, you know, uh, I've been endorsed by more than 100 different sheriffs in this state. And Stacey Abrams had a response that you probably wouldn't expect. Men and women in law enforcement know who is going to be with them, who has had their back and will continue to have their back. And that is me. And that's why we have the endorsement of 107 sheriffs around this state. As I pointed out before, I'm not a member of the good old boys club. So, no, I don't have 107 sheriffs who want to be able to take black people off the streets, who want to be able to go without accountability. I don't believe every sheriff wants that. But I do know that we need a governor who believes in both defending law enforcement, also, but also defending the people of Georgia. I don't know that every one of those 107 sheriffs just wants to get black people off the streets, Jim. What a closing argument. Well, I imagine the black ones would not have that opinion, Greg. <laughs> Call me crazy. And there are African-Americans in that group uh, of sheriffs that endorsed uh, Kemp. So the other, as I, as I mentioned in today's jolt, when you see this line of argument from Stacey Abrams, that the law enforcement officials who are endorsing my opponent are doing so because they are racist. Notice that Raphael Warnock, who is running for Senate in the same state, is running around touting his endorsement by several sheriff's groups and emphasizing his support for funding law enforcement, attempting to run as far away from defund the police as he possibly can. You do wonder how much coordination and how much communication there is between the Warnock and Abrams campaigns, because it probably I would I get the feeling Raphael Warnock would probably prefer that Stacey Abrams not run around the state arguing that the police are bad, the police are evil, and the police are racist. What he's running around saying, I'm the guy who's working well with police. I'm the one who gets the funding, et cetera, et cetera. Today's morning, Jolt kind of looked at this because there was we, we kind of alluded to it, but we didn't get into it too much. Chuck Schumer was uh, on a tarmac when President Biden had flown up to Syracuse, New York. And he's talking and he's within earshot of the microphones and the cameras of the press. And he says a couple of things, kind of giving Biden a, a quick briefing on what he's hearing about the Senate races. And one of the things he says is, the state where we're going downhill is Georgia. It's hard to believe that they will go for Herschel Walker. When I saw people first discussing this, when people said, oh, what is he mean going downhill and that like it's all, you know, the hardest part is, is done and it's kind of all downhill from here? Or is it things are going badly and they're going downhill? Having watched it and looking at his facial expression, I think it's pretty clear he's not sharing good news with Biden. In fact, he kind of like shakes his head like, ah, oh, can you believe this? When he talks about it's hard to believe that they will go for Herschel Walker. 
Now, for what it's worth, he also said that he thought that uh, Fetterman, it looks like the debate didn't hurt us too much in Pennsylvania, indicating that the debate with Fetterman that we thought was uh, really had gone so terribly for him, you know, at least from what Schumer is seeing and hearing, it wasn't hurting the Democrats too much. And he said that uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Mastio was picking up steam in Nevada. She's been trailing by a small margin, but we've seen the state of Nevada disappoint us before. That's why on this podcast we often say, way to go, Nevada, way to go. So Schumer is hearing that Warnock is in trouble. And what kind of jumped out at me, we knew that there's going to be this split. We knew that Warnock was a, was a, he's an incumbent. He's taking on Herschel Walker, who is a um, occasionally linguistically and verbally challenged candidate for the Republicans. He's never run for anything before. Stacey Abrams is taking on an incumbent Republican governor who's pretty darn popular. But I think it's now just flat out indisputable. Raphael Warnock is a better candidate than Stacey Abrams is. And a lot of Democrats hope, okay, well, you know, maybe Abrams isn't perfect, but or she's got some flaws, but Warnock will do well enough in the Senate race to carry her over the top. I think the opposite is happening. And I think it's actually less, I mean, you can, I don't want to take anything away from what the Brian Kemp campaign has done, but I think as you heard in that exchange, I think Stacey Abrams is proving to be a really deeply flawed candidate. And I think it starts with her disputing the results of the 2018 election. Uh, the infamous picture of her in that kindergarten class without a mask when all the kids are sitting around, that doesn't help. Her chasing away the Major League Baseball also. But she has built up a record that is perfect for a hosting gig on MSNBC. It's not so good if you're running for governor in a state like Georgia in a year that's pretty good for Republicans. And this has been obvious since the beginning of the cycle. But really, Democrats did not want to hear it. They had their narrative. Stacey Abrams is a superstar. The only problem is the polling numbers never backed that up. There was never any indication that she was the kind of candidate who could win a majority in a kind of red-leaning state. Yes, Democrats did very well in 2020. But remember, all three races that they won, Biden, Warnock, and Ossoff, they all won by like the skin of their teeth, by like one percentage point or so. That's not the kind of state where you can run somebody with a really progressive record. And now she's running around saying that the cops are racist. I think she's actually got very bad instincts. Uh, or, or the, uh, you know... Uh, if you're worried about inflation, abortion is an important, you know, like all, like she's not that good. She, she's actually pretty bad at this. And so now the interesting question, I got to give credit to, uh, I'm going to mangle his name and I feel so bad. Zaid Jelani, I believe is his name. He's a, he's a writer. I see him on my Twitter feed a great deal. And he said, you know, Walker isn't dragging Kemp down. Abrams underperformance is threatening Warnock's numbers and the chances of the Democrats holding the Senate. And I think the evidence is starting to accumulate to justify that interpretation. She's running really badly. I mean, some of these races have Kemp up by 10 points. We'll see it in Ohio, where uh, DeWine is running way ahead of J.D. Vance. It'll be curious to see how things shake out in Arizona, where, you know, Masters is getting close, but generally behind by a bit, and Carrie Lake has been enjoying a lead for a while. In Pennsylvania, Oz is neck and neck, or maybe a little bit behind, and uh, Mastriano doesn't look all that competitive. So you're going to see some split. But the question is, if you're a Georgia Democrat, how badly can Stacey Abrams do in the governor's race and you still win that Senate race? And that's not even mentioning the House races, the state Senate races, the state House races, all of that's on the ballot this year. So if Stacey Abrams does badly enough, this year could be a bloodbath for Georgia Democrats. And then it'll be a very interesting question. Why did they insist upon nominating her? Why couldn't they see that she was terrible for this, if not terrible? a very flawed candidate then, and someone who was a poor match for a red state that can be purple 
or the lightest of blue under the ideal circumstances. So anyway, that's my thinking on Georgia. I know Republicans are going to win the governor's race, but I think maybe the consequences of Stacey Abrams are one of the most fascinating things to watch this election cycle. Yeah, and we'll see if this is true. But Erickson thinks that as a result of uh, Abrams running out of money, her get-out-the-vote effort is not as strong either. And uh, according to him, Warnock was relying on the Abrams ground game. So we'll find out uh, soon enough whether that's the case. Keep in mind, though, of course, that in both of these races, you got to get to 50% to avoid mm-hmm. the runoff. So uh, it's not inconceivable that the balance of power in the U.S. Senate is once again going to be uh, hinging on a Georgia Senate runoff. If it does, let's hope it turns out better than the last time we were in that scenario. So, Jim, a lot to keep our eyes on. Uh, We'll keep doing it tomorrow. See you then. You can tell it's busy season. See you tomorrow, Greg. (laughs) Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. If you haven't done that, please do so. They they do help us out a lot. Uh, Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a terrific Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan joins me to explain what he will focus on as Judiciary Committee Chairman. If Republicans win back the House in the midterms, I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Jordan also slams the aggressively political actions of the Justice Department and FBI. I'll also react to Elon Musk officially taking over at Twitter. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.